Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From America's farm to fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. Sometimes the cafeteria lady doesn't get the justice she deserves. Um, they work very hard for our kids, and they care about our kids. You may have heard the rumors that school lunch is broken, but have you heard the one about how school lunch is being done right? According to the School Nutrition Association, nearly 100,000 schools and institutions serve school lunches to 29.6 million students each day. Of these, 20.1 million are free lunches. School meals are keeping American kids free from hunger. During the pandemic, schools have continued to serve as a primary source of student nutrition and calories. Studies show that children who eat school meals tend to have healthier diets than their peers. A balanced diet has been tied to better success in the classroom. Our school lunch programs are being run by true heroes. These kale raisers are innovating with local food to support farmers, protecting children's health, and making schools more delicious. Today, you're going to hear how school lunch is supposed to be done. My nonprofit, Food Literacy Center, is fortunate to work in a school district alongside a school lunch program that breaks barriers. I can't wait for you to meet their leader. Diana Flores wants to transform school kitchens into school restaurants. She serves as the Director of Nutrition Services for California's third largest school district, Sacramento City Unified. It's a low-income school district that's cooking up 30,000 school lunches per day. Forget what you think you know about school lunch. Today's school lunch business is attracting employees like Diana, who are proactively pushing back against heavy-handed restrictions that limit the quality of their meals. Flores and her team are on a mission to make school food not only taste great, but also to meet high health standards. I've invited her here to set the record straight on the debate about school lunch. She's the person in charge of delivering those meals to our kids. Welcome to Raising Kale, Diana. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Let's start at the very beginning. How long have you been working in school food? 
Um, I started in 2007, so a little over 12 years. Uh, and before that, I spent my career in food service, restaurants uh, specifically, um, steakhouse chains. My very first job was working in fast food, so my career has been food service. I remember you saying you found a school food job description online and you were thinking about moving into the field. And what was it particularly? You knew there would be challenges, but there was something about it that was speaking to you. I think when you um, spend 20 years in the same job, at some point you start looking at what is rewarding. And um, it's not about a paycheck anymore. You're really looking for something that every day at the end of the day, you felt good about the work you did. And um, as a young mother at that time, doing something great for kids, um, something that every child needs is a great meal. Um, Knowing that my kids every day got a great meal and um, a lot of kids do not kind of drove me to this position. I commute an hour each way. I could easily work much closer to home, um, but decided it was worth it to work for these kids in Sacramento. Love that. Yeah. And your passion really shows. Um, Paint with a broad stroke. How does school lunch work? You have a certain dollar amount and you have to produce those 30,000 meals. Give us the broad stroke so that people understand how this program works. It's really funny that you asked that right now today, um, because just about 30 minutes ago, I did something for our new executive chef to kind of break down how our funding works for him so he could have a better understanding how much money he has to spend on food. Mm -hmm. And so we get approximately about $3.60 for a lunch. Um, It's different for breakfast and different for other programs, but I'll just stick with lunch. And out of that $3.60, nearly half of it, about 48, 49% of it is benefits and labor. When you have employees in a school district that get very good medical benefits for them and their family, all free of charge, it's not free. It's coming out of that school lunch reimbursement. Um, Most of that money comes from the federal government, but we get 24 cents from the state government. The downside with that is when the state runs out of their pot of money every year, sometime usually it's around May, April, the state will say, we're out of money, and then you don't get that 24 cents for a few months. And then the following year, you get that again. Um, And that happens most years. So then it's even less than the $3.60. And then... We approximately try to hit a food food cost budget. We have to pay for all of our gas, all of our trucks, all of our food, all of our equipment, our refrigerators, all the repairs to our equipment. People do not realize that we actually essentially pay the district for services like cutting our payroll checks, paying our vendors, HR department, working on HR needs. So we pay about a million dollars a year just to the district to operate in the kitchens. Um, pays for custodial to clean our kitchens. So in the end, it's about a dollar for food. That's really what it boils down to. And trying to prepare a meal for a dollar, I think most people would be challenged to do that in their own kitchen. And we're trying to do it for 30,000 lunches. And not be serving top ramen every day. Right. So um, we have to get really creative how we source, where we buy our food, Um, how much we buy at a time. The more we buy, we get better price breaks. Um, So we started our program in Sex City in 2008 with a local purchasing um, agenda and trying to be our own distribution center. We were large enough that we can do that. A lot of smaller districts cannot do that. And is there another school district doing this? I know some districts that try to buy direct. However, they don't buy 
the majority of their products direct, we do. Explain how all this works, because this is major improvement that you have made. When we opened a vacant warehouse in 2008, we... We decided that instead of buying from broadline distributors, which is how food service is typically done, whether you're a restaurant, fast food, fast casual, or whether you're a school district, people typically buy in food service, commercial food service, food from a distributor, um, like a Cisco Sacramento, Gold Star Foods, Jack Mar Food Service. Those are all distributors. They do all the purchasing for you. They bring it into their warehouses, and then they deliver it to you. And you pay a fee for that. And we've decided... <laughs> to learn how to do that ourselves. Um, None of us had really worked in distribution before. We had all, most of us had worked in food service. And we learned and hired people and trained people, developed our own software, and we buy direct from manufacturers. So instead of one delivery a day with a truck of food on it, we have four, five, or six deliveries a day from the, direct from the manufacturer. there's so many benefits to it, but in the end, the biggest benefit is the cost. We pay less for our food. So you're cutting out the middleman. That's right. And and now you're the one running the fleet of trucks, not That's right. a big distributor. Right. And now that we have 11 refrigerated trucks, that brings the capacities to really think about what we want to put on that truck. I mean, we've streamlined everything from our district mail, our uh dry goods, our frozen goods, our refrigerated goods. Now we're opening a central kitchen that those products will go on the truck. Everything goes on one truck every day. In my perfect world, and I do believe it's possible because we've done a lot of this work, our produce and our milk would also go on that truck. So one truck would arrive every day to every of our 80 schools and all the products for the next day serve is on that truck. And so we've eliminated all the distribution. We wouldn't have milk distributed to all our schools, produce distributed to all our schools, and all of our food would come from our warehouse. That is our ultimate goal. And this is possible because you are such a large school district. That's right. And I, because we're uniquely situated in Sacramento. the heart of the farm to fork capital of America, right? That's right. We started with buying dry goods um, in a vacant warehouse, and then we got a re- refrigerated unit up and running again, an old one and started buying refrigerated frozen items. Actually, it was a freezer unit. And then we got a grant for a refrigerated unit. When we got that, we started local sourcing for farmers um, because we needed to refrigerate that product before it goes out. And that's how we started doing that. And that's probably been the biggest um, compliment to our meal program is that the produce that our kids get literally sometimes was picked two days before and it's on their plate that day. And um, it just tastes better. And you're working with something like over 20 local farmers right. by doing this. Right. We've actually estimated it's been over 40 growers. Um, we have a solid network of about 12 growers that we we buy from every year in season. Um, but we continue to buy from other growers as needed. Um, sometimes they don't have enough product to sell us because we are big. So maybe one season they're able to and then the next season they're not. Um but we still count them as one of our local growers because in two years we, they might sell to us again. And, and what so. are you doing with all this fresh food? How does it, how does it get to the kids? So right now we have salad bars in every school, um, specifically at the K through eight schools. The kids actually get to self serve whatever fruits and vegetables they want for the day. And our goal is to source products we know they love to eat. Um, what I used to see was. The least expensive apple, you know, oranges every day. And that was pretty much what their variety was. 
and now they have cut pineapple, they have watermelons, they have strawberries, they have blueberries. Um, we try to source what we know kids like to eat because one, a lot of our kids don't have that in their fridge at home. Because and we're in a food insecure that's school correct. district. Most of them, that's very expensive for any of us to have in our fridge. And um, two, um, if you put produce out there that they don't like, they're not going to eat it. And how are you going to get kids to learn how to eat fresh and healthy food if it's not something they gravitate towards? Um, so we start as early as preschool. We have preschool programs where three- and four-year-olds actually get the same produce that the elementary kids get. So by the time they hit kindergarten, they're a little used to eating it. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised how much they love salad. They love to eat salad. So we have some sort of salad every day on the salad bar. When you started in the school district, did they have those salad bars yet? Is that no. something that you helped to implement? So the salad bars, we rolled them out. Oh gosh, I don't even remember what year that was, but it's probably about six or seven years ago. We rolled out a salad bar in every school. And that definitely is a commitment that we will continue um, in the future. The salad bars are a big piece of our meal program. Um, with the central kitchen that's coming, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, we will prepare some salad kits, a variety of different salads and scratch-made salad dressings so that when the kit gets to the school, our staff, all they got to do is toss it all and then put it on the salad bar. Um, and we believe that's going to open up a lot of other options for our kids that they haven't seen. Mostly what they eat is ranch salad, a little bit of ranch on their salad. We want them to tr explore other um, taste profiles with their vegetables. And how do you go about getting kids interested in something new and something different? Well, it's not easy. Kids are very finicky eaters. Um, I think it's just starting young. Um, we rely on our partners, like you, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're probably our biggest partner in that you're in our after-school programs with our most needy kids, um, and you teach them how to cook. And when you can teach a child, one, how to grow something in a garden, and two, how to cook, prepare that item, they will say, wow, this actually does taste good, because everything tastes better when you make it yourself. Absolutely. And then what we hope is that they actually go home and say, hey, mom, can you get some of that at the store? You know, And that might happen occasionally for them, because now mom thinks, maybe if I buy that one thing, they'll actually eat it. For those who aren't familiar, um, what she's describing is our food literacy program where we go into uh, after-school programs and we teach a cooking and nutrition program. And so um, so obviously you have Food Literacy Center partnering with you at Sac City Unified. Do you see in other school districts um, programs that are similar? And do you what do you hear on the school lunch scene about those kinds of programs? I do see programs in other districts. There's Harvest of the Month program in some districts. Um, I'm not very familiar with after-school programs like um, you are doing with cooking. Um, I just think that there's a broader vision and partnership between uh, um, our school meal program and the Food Literacy Center with Floyd Farms coming on board where kids can actually take a field trip and learn more about cooking and hands-on um, demonstrations with food since Home economics left the curriculum years ago in schools. There's been a big void where people are growing up and they don't know how to cook, which is pretty scary. And we do actually envision one day to be able to do some summer camps where our chefs are teaching 
um, how to cook too for specifically needy students, um, but for other students as well, because everyone needs to learn that. Um, and that is probably a goal that we'd like to set for ourselves as well. And talk about some of the challenges that you have, because we hear this often, you know, um, what is the school lunch program doing to do tasting education? And what is the school lunch program doing to um, encourage this? And that's a pretty big lift for a program that's already working with a little over a dollar a meal. Yeah, um, we're experiencing that now meaning we are doing menu development for our central kitchen where we'll make scratch-made meals. And um, it will be a challenge. We know that kids will be resistant to freshly prepared food, which <laughs> is sad because they've many of them um, prefer the chicken nuggets. Because they the won't pizza. recognize the fresh. They won't recognize it, and they won't necessarily love it. It may take 10 years till we get... Um, students that have tried it, seen it enough in the lunchroom, tried it in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe by sixth grade, they might start liking it. Mm -hmm. um, we know that we'll have some challenges there. We also know that we will target some entrees that we know are favorites that we can make um, from scratch healthier. So um, things like pizza, I actually just tasted a breakfast pizza um, right now with egg, spinach, um, vegetables in the egg. Um, you know, it's hard. I'm they hungry. see the vegetables and then they're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. Um, but where it's something we're testing right now with students. You keep mentioning this central kitchen. So right now, uh, with, uh, we'll describe what a central kitchen is in a second. But right now, how are meals made without this central kitchen? How do they get to the kids? So for the most part, we have about 81 schools that we're servicing in Sacramento, including some charter schools. And um, the elementary schools are what you call a retherm kitchen, meaning... Um, the size and the footprint of the kitchen and the amount of staff in that kitchen is designed for a frozen food entree to show up there and it's prepared on site in an oven. Um, there's usually one double stack oven and that's just about enough time to get 700 meals prepared for an elementary school. There isn't time to chop, dot, slice, wash. Um, there's not a lot of time for that. Um, at the high schools, our comprehensive high schools, we already have quite an extensive scratch cooked menu. We're very proud of that. We have increased our meal count immensely, which I will talk about in a minute, too. And meal count means the number our of kids coming number, in and actually eating correct. the school lunch. Um, over the last 10 years, our meal count has steadily increased every year, year over year. Um, at the elementaries, we feel like that is our biggest need to try to get to scratch cooking, and that was why the Central Kitchen came to fruition, was specifically to try to bring our elementary menu up um, and and do some of the things we're doing for the high schoolers for the elementary. And the limitations are the facilities in the elementary schools. They don't have the same kitchen set up as the high schools, correct? The facilities and the number of staff. So um, because of the reimbursement we get, we are limited to how much labor we can spend on meals. So um, I could just hire more and more staff and put them in that kitchen, and then maybe we could get to scratch cooking, but then I'd be backwards and operating in the red, and I'd have to ask the district to help support those costs. And, and we can't do that. And most schools are doing that, right? They're in the red, and um, but they're not also scratch cooking, but they're a lot of school districts, their school lunch programs in the red and seeking support from. Yeah. I heard that... some data from the um, California Department of Education that only 14% of school nutrition programs in California operate in the black, meaning they do not um, draw from the general fund. 
Um, we feel it's our duty that the general fund is for educating kids, and we have to find a way to feed kids on the reimbursement we get. And um, so far, we've done that. Um, it's been baby steps every year, baby steps of improvement. It's not something you can do overnight. Um, when I started in 2007, our nutrition budget was a $12 million budget, meaning we essentially would get about $12 million in because of the meals that we were serving. Um, and this next year, I have budgeted $30 million, So we have more wow. than doubled it in Wow, congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's really due to increased meal counts. More increased, kids are eating the food. Increased breakfast counts because we are um, we qualified 58 of our 80 schools as community eligibility provision, meaning all the kids can eat at no charge. So our, a lot more students are coming in for breakfast, which does help children academically because a lot of them wouldn't eat breakfast before they came to school before. Um, our meal count has increased substantially all age segments, but specifically high schools, we've seen a big increase in the last five years. Um, and then we have a supper program, after school supper program, that is part of our revenue increase as well. Those are amazing numbers to see that type of participation. And I think it is because you have put so much effort into the salad bars, the local food, um, testing. You've got a new chef this year. And coming up, uh, you'll get the keys this year to a central kitchen. So explain what the central kitchen is and how that complements the existing school lunch. Yeah, so I'll just say it before I forget. If you want to know more information about our central kitchen, it's www.thecentralkitchen.com. You can learn more information about our program, our central kitchen, our executive chefs on staff, um, and our menus. Um, But essentially, the word kitchen is a little bit misleading. It's really a food production facility. It makes massive amounts of food in a short amount of time with limited labor so that we could prepare the number of meals that we need to for our students. That's really what it's for. Um, We envision all our dressing sauces, um, salad kits. We invest in fresh soups. We can make fresh sandwiches, which sounds really funny, but making sandwiches for an elementary school is impossible in the kitchens we have now. Um, We can make fresh sandwiches. We are doing something that I've not seen. We've toured many states and up and down the state of California. We've looked at every central kitchen in schools. I really did not learn a lot from a lot of the central kitchens in schools. We Mm -hmm. went outside of schools, looked at casinos and other um, mass feeding central kitchens and learned a lot from them. And we have um, in our new kitchen a a, um, meat processing area that is a temp-controlled room where the meat never leaves temperature controls for food safety and the HACCP program, and we will process our own meats from scratch as well. So those will hopefully all be locally sourced. Um, and this means like making your own um, Our own chicken, chicken pieces for salads or soups, um, pastas, our own taco meat. Um, we can have strips of... Um, Basically, any kind of meat you could think of, we could process ourselves rather than pay the expensive processors to do it for us. And then they package it and freeze it, and then they send it to us. Um, We're buying a lot of those products now, but they're very expensive. So we hope to save um, money on doing it ourselves. Plus, we create jobs in Sacramento, which is also great. We also have a produce processing center, which is going to be huge for our farm-to-school program. 
we might be able to purchase from some smaller growers now and just integrate their products into our salad bars. It doesn't have to be enough for the entire serve. It could just be a small bag that goes to every school and it gets tossed in with everything in, in our kits. You know, it doesn't have to be um, enough for 30,000 meals anymore. Right, because anyone who has tried to chop multiple watermelons for a picnic, you, that's a big production. Right. You need a specific space. Right. You need specific machines to do that at scale. Right. It's the machinery. It's um, how we package it, how we're going to ship it. There's a lot there that we have to learn. We've never operated like that before. Um, so it'll be baby steps. It'll be a few years in the making. But, but we definitely hope to do uh, some scratch cooking next school year. Uh, we'll get the keys in November. Um, we are plan to move our supper program over there. That'll be one of the first things we do. And we're going to start with the easy stuff first, start making our dressings, start making our soups, um, probably start our processing, produce processing. Um, and then we'll probably move into meat processing in the next year or so. And then the dream is that in those elementary schools where currently they're eating the frozen entrees, um, they'll be having from scratch pizza pizzas and spaghetti that's, sauces. And that's true. We actually have a pizza processing center. We decided that that is a favorite for kids. So if we're going to do it, we're going to make it healthy and we're going to do it ourselves. Um, and then we also have a great bakery where we'll bake. We can bake our own loaves of bread. Um, there will be a lot of things we can do with the bakery, and that will be a whole nother thing that we'll have to learn how to do. And to, to want to do this, because you could have just stuck with the status quo, you know, gotten your food through the middleman. Um, to, to want to do this, there's a, a fire in your belly to make school lunch amazing. What What is driving you? Well, I kind of I said it in the beginning, but... I guess because of my restaurant background, I just thought we could do better. And everyone kept saying, oh, it can't be done. The reimbursement isn't enough, but we could do more with the reimbursement we do have. Um, I am advocating for changes with USDA and school meal programs nationwide. Um, that gets kind of complicated because it is a complicated program, but... Um, one thing we're asking for here in Sacramento is something called cash in lieu of commodities. We get about almost $2 million of commodity goods from USDA. It's a shopping list of predetermined processed items that we can pick and choose from and use it to offset our food costs, use those products to help um, keep our food costs under control. But I don't want those items anymore. You know, yeah. I want... Uh, raw ingredients, but they don't offer that. They say they want scratch cooking, but they don't offer that on the commodity list. Mm -hmm. um, they do offer some things like dried beans and legumes, but I can buy those easy. That's not something that I really need. What I really want is a check. Send me the check and I'll buy locally. Reduce freight costs, reduce distributor costs, support our local economy. We are lucky in California. We have lots of produce to pick from here. Um, and it's not unheard of. Oakland Unified gets it, and we want it. it it's a long story. It's, uh, they've had it for about 30 years. And the entire state of Kansas gets cash in lieu. Mm. So um, I'm just trying to knock on some doors there, and we're advocating for um, cash in lieu of commodities. I think that would further help our program. What about... Um Parents listening, you know, how can they help? What What do you want them to know that maybe they don't understand about school lunch? The most vocal parents that are unhappy with school lunch tend to be our higher income parents. 
they their kids eat well at home um, and they feel sometimes that their voice is the voice is everyone's voice and we have so many different voices in our district we have families that are grateful for anything their kids get at school and then we have other families that wouldn't touch our food mm-hmm. um, I feel my goal is that our food is good enough for everyone and they'll all come in to eat, regardless of income. It is good food. I've had the school lunch. <laughs> You're doing incredible work. And um, so, I mean, that's kind of our goal, because we feel like if we, if our biggest critics, if we can win them over, we can win anybody over. So that's kind of um, something we're hoping to do. You know, we have a team of over 350 employees, and um, sometimes the cafeteria lady doesn't get the justice she deserves. Um, they work very hard for our kids. And they care about our kids. And I really give them all the credit. Yeah, you've got a great team. I interviewed Diana before the pandemic. When COVID-19 closed schools and rates of hunger surged, it created a whole new world for school meal service. Diana and her team didn't miss a beat. I caught up with her for an update. So, Diana, you and I spoke last March prior to schools closing down, prior to COVID. And I just wanted to check in, get an update, because I know that the school lunch program has had a significant role in assisting during COVID. So talk to me about what happened. What was that first day like when you got the news? So the first day was March 16th. I'll never forget that day. At the time, the district was unsure what to do with staffing, whether people should report to work. So an all points bulletin went out to all staff at the district to remain home. It was a Monday and then they realized, but we need to feed the kids. And um, that first day they asked us somehow find a way to feed the kids uh, with staff that were not represented by bargaining agreements. So all of us supervisors and managers in our department went out on vans that Monday. We served 1800 meals that day. and, by, and the following day, nutrition staff were asked to report back to work, gave them new assignments, reassigned which schools would be open, didn't know what to expect. Um, so Monday, 1,800 meals. By Friday, we were doing 20,000. Wow. Um, it was a very difficult week and pivoted probably every day on how we were going to operate, how we were going to serve meals. At that time, the safety protocols were not dialed in. We were kind of left to figure it out, get masks. Um, You know, are we going to put food in trunks? Are we going to pass it through the windows? Um, And it seemed as the weeks went on, we just learned best practices from other food service operations across the country and decided um, sometime within that first month that we would keep our staff a good 10 feet or further from all cars, which was a great decision. Um, And we have found a way to keep our staff safe and our community safe. That's fantastic. And I know, you know, you had considerations for your team to think about the kids, the families. Uh, I heard at some schools, you know, there were lines down the street for blocks of folks lining up for meals. That's true. Um, Even now the meal counts have not decreased. Um, There have been two rounds of pandemic EBT cards um, distributed to our entire enrollment. And explain what that is. Pandemic folks is electronic benefit transfer. It's like a credit card that you can use at supermarkets and farmers markets for groceries. 
um, and students in our district qualified because so many of our schools are community eligibility schools, so all those students qualified. And the other 20 schools that are not community eligibility schools are provision to breakfast, meaning breakfast is free. Mm -hmm. So all our students are eligible for some sort of free meal at all of our schools. So all of our students qualify. And this means that we're talking about students who are food insecure, who are hungry, who uh, come from low income families, correct? We are a very urban district. Um, 73% of our students qualify for the free and reduced lunch program. And um, so the minute you know that your income might be in our families, they know that their income might be affected. A lot of them are frontline workers. A lot of them work in restaurants or in jobs which pay minimum wage. And a lot of those jobs were impacted by COVID. Yeah. And when you think about that first few weeks of the shutdown in California, everyone was hoarding food, stocking up you know, proteins in your freezers, stocking up dry goods. Our families don't have that extra budget to do that. So they came curbside to try to stock up. We did offer a variety of dry goods that you could stock up and we continue to do that. You're feeding them a hot meal in addition to items that can be used throughout the week and month. Right, we're actually pivoting even now. It seems we're always adjusting. Um, we were finding that a lot of the hot meals by the time a parent or guardian picked them up and then got back home, they'd be cold and not the best quality. We had some parents say, you know, I would just rather cook it at home. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of doing both. We still have some hot meals that we think might stay hot, but some others that are ready to cook at home. I can't imagine the amount. I, I just feel like in the beginning, it's like you were saying every day you were pivoting. I mean, have those pivots even paused or do you Not continue? Really. You know, we're constantly reassessing to think, how can we do more? How can we be more? Um, but then the COVID counts go up. So we're concerned about changing our operation when we don't know, um, you know, if staff may be close contacts of a family member and you have to quarantine. Um, and we've had to do that. And um, we continue to do that. And we err on the side of caution at all times. So if a family member has any COVID symptoms and don't even have COVID yet, we still ask staff to stay home um, just to be safe. Yeah, so a, that affects our operations when you don't have enough hands. Right now we're doing between 30 and 45,000 meals. And that's the other challenge is one day you'll do 30,000, the next day you'll do 40,000. And how do you deal with that? You know, yeah. um, we rely on some backup shelf stable meals all the time when more cars come than we plan that day. And so you have things as the uh, existing meal plan is running out and there's still cars coming, you're, you're pivoting on the spot. Right. So early in the pandemic, we would run out of food and that was really gut wrenching. Um, so we came up with a process to create bundled meals that are shelf stable meals that we can just keep on site. Every site has them. If we run out of food, then we switch to that. Wow. So no one's turned away. Everyone gets something. That's incredible. And you have been instrumental in the Sacramento community as a whole. You're bringing other groups in who may have been affected, other businesses, other nonprofits like Food Literacy Center, um, restaurants to sort of leverage the power of the school lunch program to get to these families in need. Right. We saw early on that just school lunch, um, while we were offering four meals a day for every child, seven days a week, um, we 
could see that the family's needs were greater than that. There are many families in our district that have multi-generational families. Grandpa and grandma live in the home. We're not allowed to offer meals for any adults. Anyone basically 19 and over, we're not allowed. So we did start pivoting um, for adult meals working with the food bank in Sacramento, doing food bank drops at many of our school sites alongside our school meal program. We worked with the family meal project with downtown restaurants where they created meals for 11 of our schools and um, they served meals alongside our school meal program. And then also with you, uh, Amber, and your team, um, we, I, I was saying, how can we have you curbside with us because our students know you and your team and how can you help distribute more food for the families? So um, your STEM kits have been well received by our students and our families and we appreciate our partnership with you. Well, we appreciate it as well. I mean, it's been unprecedented times, unprecedented levels of hunger. They say that we're going to be looking at these levels of hunger for the next 10 years. So one more decade. Um, we've seen statistics saying that we've gone backward 30 years in terms of the progress that had been made in terms of child hunger. Um, so, you know, the work that you're doing, the work that you're enabling community partners to do is so important during this crisis and this ongoing unknown. Um, we just don't know the future either. I, I would hope that USDA takes notice that food insecurity is just a day away for many families. So how many meals have you served through this crisis? So I remember um, after March 16th, in six weeks time, we served a million meals. Wow. And since then we retabulated and at the end of December, we served 7.2 million meals <gasps> since March. Amazing, wow, yeah. wow. The need is high. Yeah, so that kind of demonstrates that things haven't really changed. I would say every six, to seven weeks, we were doing another million meals. So it's been going on the whole time. Wow. People need this food and they're reliant on it, clearly. It took a village um, to be able to continue and sustain those large meal count numbers. We uh, received some reassigned workers to our program from our child development aides and our bus drivers all were reassigned to our program um, this school year as of October. And when we were able to do that, that's when we started offering meals at all 40 sites for the weekends. Mm. So that helped um, expand more access to more families. So important. You know, we closed on a Friday and by Monday we had lines of cars. I mean, um, I think a lot of people are surprised by that, that our, our community is living paycheck to paycheck. And when they are not sure that paycheck's coming, um, the effects on the family are huge. I fully believe that every child in the United States should have a meal at school, just like they have books, um, just like they have other supplies. If someone can afford that meal, great. Maybe they pack lunch if they want to, but the options should be there for every child. Um, there still are problems with access to school meals nationwide. Lots of families do not um, apply on the meal application, concern for a number of other reasons. Um, 
There's also a stigma surrounding school lunch still to this day. Kids are embarrassed that they might get a free lunch, so they just don't eat um, because their friends maybe can afford a lunch. Um, somehow we need to figure that out. And this is a perfect whirlwind that shows people how important food is um, for everyone. And you obviously can't learn in school if you're hungry. And we know that that happens. Absolutely. And, and for folks listening, how can they help? I would say that the first thing that I would recommend is donate to our non nonprofits. It's probably not what you were leading to, but, um, you know, some school districts are struggling financially to put the meals out. Our meal count is so high right now that we are sustainable um, right now. We never know if in six months that will change because um, regulations change all the time. Um, but right now it would be our nonprofits um, trying to reinstate our family meal project, um, donating to the food bank who are, have um, limited resources and they do so much with what they get. Um, that's where I would point people. And if they can talk to their member of Congress and make sure that they are prioritizing these issues. That's true. Um, that is completely true. Lots of advocacy work. So if anybody is interested in advocacy work, I'd be happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone. Um, there's many things that we see in the school meal program that could be improved and um, would love to catch some people's ears in Washington on changing school lunch nationwide. Um, and I'm not saying fund it more, I'm saying fund it differently. And we'll be putting resources on our website so that people can learn more, can read more. So uh, please go there to check out more resources about how you can get involved and to keep yourself informed. Thank you so much for giving us this update and thank you for all that you are doing through this crisis. The community needs you and we're so, so fortunate to have you. Thank Thanks, you, Diana. Amber, for having us on and thank you for the work you do for our students and our families. Takes a village. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today to learn more about our heroes in school lunch. At Food Literacy Center, our partnership with the School Meal Program has enabled us to reach more children and bring them more locally grown foods. Diana has a special way of bringing abundance to a program working with very few resources. Our students are lucky to have her. While you're listening, help me out. Please rate the podcast and share an episode with a friend. You may have heard that I wrote a book. Food Anatomy Activities for Kids is out now. You can order a copy wherever books are sold. Kids learn about the history, culture, and science of food by rolling up their sleeves and heading to the kitchen. They'll learn about the seeds of a fruit that we ferment before we eat them. Cocoa. Then they'll experiment with ways to melt chocolate to make Oaxacan hot chocolate. They can also be a vegetable reporter by charting the five senses they experience while tasting new veggies. Tune in next week. I speak with a scientist who's designing new vegetables. He's doing something radical with our food. He's making it taste better. You'll learn why this is unique and learn all about purple peas. Next time on Raising Kale.